Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. in Genesis this morning, chapter 18. Let's pray, and then let's read the text. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful morning, this Lord's Day. We thank you for this holiday weekend. We thank you for those who sacrificed that we might enjoy this kind of freedom, that we can gather together without fear to worship with your people and to enjoy the fellowship of the saints. We pray that you'd be with us this morning that you would pour out your spirit on your church, that even this morning as we read and discuss Genesis 18, you would illumine our understanding that we might see Jesus in the text. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen. All right. Genesis 18. After all of the assurances that Abram has had, up to and including circumcision at this point, right? Then all of his struggles of faith are gone, and we're just going to witness the fulfilling of all of the promises all at once, and it'll be glorious, and I don't know, maybe Genesis 18 will be the last chapter in the book. All right. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the earth, and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abram ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, 
so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty I will not destroy it. Then he said, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. We'll pause there. Eighteen and nineteen go together, so we may continue into chapter nineteen this morning. But what do you notice? What things stand out to you as we read the text? Yeah. Yeah. So there's something about the manner of the Lord's appearing to Abraham that is unique in terms of what we've seen so far. And joined with that, Abraham is conversing, right? He's he's interceding with the Lord, but it unfolds like a face-to-face conversation, which strikes us as interesting or unique or odd? Have we seen anything like that up to this point in Genesis? Either of these things, the manner of his appearing or the manner of their conversation? Yeah, so with Adam, in particular back in Genesis 3. Of course, there it spells bad news, but implied in what we see with that in Genesis 3 is that this was the regular pattern of God's fellowship with Adam and Eve, that he would come and walk with them in the garden and speak to them face to face. And the description of this scene appears to imply that of Abraham, which leaves us with all kinds of questions. All kinds of questions. Good. What else do we see? I'm just trying to imagine this entity strolling through the desert. What he was wearing, what his countenance was like, such that Abraham just, and of course we can only deal with words that are in Scripture, 
what, I mean, we know the invisible power of the Father in heaven impel, compels things. But I'm just trying to imagine him identifying such that he comes and bows down to him in amazing, respectful reverence. So, so three words to watch in this chapter as we're unfolding and figuring out what's going on. It's the word Lord, right? If the word Lord is in small caps, then that's the name Yahweh or Jehovah, right? That the, the Greeks, or when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, by that time, the Jews avoided pronouncing the name. And so they replaced it with the Greek word kurios, which means Lord. And that's found its way into our English translations as well. But if you see that in small caps, that's the Lord's personal name. If we just see Lord, well, that's the word that means master or Lord um, or sir. And people will address God using that term, but they'll also address other people, especially um, in situations where they're addressing a social superior or someone whose status they don't know. Like that's a polite form of address, like Mr. in English. And then Sarah, it's, it's actually the same word, but, but the ESV doesn't capitalize it. Sarah refers to her husband uh, with either that word, Adonai, or it may be Baal, which in this instance just means master or, or husband. So if we pay attention to these words and which one is used where, then that leaves us asking at, at what point in a chapter is Abraham just addressing a stranger politely? And at what point does he realize that this is the Lord. So if you look at verse 3 is the first time it's used, and which, which term of address is it here? Is it the Lord's personal name, or is it just master or sir? Masters. Yeah. yeah. That's what I'm saying. Was it they ate together? Was it an angel? Was it actually God appearing in the flesh? Or was it Bethelzedek? Well, that's a good question. What does the narrator tell us, right? Because remember, the narrator is reliable. The narrator knows all the information. We can rely on what the narrator tells us. But what the narrator knows and what the characters know is not the same at every point. So how does the chapter begin? The Lord appeared to him. And which word there are we looking at? Yeah, it's, well, the, the whole word is capitalized, right? So that's the Lord's personal name. That's the narrator is telling us something it takes a little while for Abraham to work out that either together with these three guys or one among what appears to be three men is the Lord manifesting himself in a physical form and appearing to Abraham. So that leads to the next question. At which point has Abraham worked out who he's talking to? Pretty, pretty quickly, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, and, and he's, he ran from the tent door. Well, I'm 13 the first time I see this, we're capitalized all the way. 
Yeah, so in 13, the Lord said to Abraham, and in his, in what he says, he says in verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Which makes clear at least that the promise of the child is from the Lord. It's definitely not up to verse um, 25. Yeah, once he enters into conversation, he seems to understand that he's not just talking to some person. He's talking to the Lord. But early in the chapter, and this is easy for us to miss, the identity of the person he's addressing is unknown to Abraham. Yes, he sees him. He runs from the tent door to meet him. He bows himself to the earth. But this is humbly greeting a stranger who's wandered into his territory and offering him hospitality. You wouldn't do that, right? You wouldn't go running out of your house and bow down to somebody you don't know. But you might go out and greet them and offer them to come in for a a cup of tea, right? Or something like that. And so this is Abraham doing that. And he hasn't, it takes him a little while in that encounter to work out who he's talking to. But certainly, at some point, he does. Good. What else do you notice? The Lord promises twice to come back next about this time next year. He repeats that part. But we aren't ever, we're never told about him coming back, which it would seem like that would still be monumentous enough that it would be mentioned because we seem to be told by other encounters. Good. We do have this interesting note at the beginning of chapter 21. We don't get a narrative of the Lord returning and a description of the scene and what that was like, but we get this interesting note at the beginning of verse 21 that says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. So she conceived and bore Abraham a son. But we don't get an unfolding scene like this. Good. So maybe his returning in a year's time didn't manifest itself in the same way. Well, did they actually sit down and eat? That appears to be the case. This is another thing where what happens in this chapter is it's some remove culturally from us, right? Um, Partly because of how hospitality works in this culture and partly because we're used to microwaves and convenience food, right? It says that Abraham did all of these things quickly, but quickly is probably a matter of hours, right? Because he sends somebody out to the livestock to take a kid that has to be slaughtered and then prepared, right? And they're they're not zapping it on high for 10 minutes, right? Um, This took some time, even if they're skilled and used to it and good at butchering animals, right? yeah, that takes a while. So you, you, you the, love to know, or I'd love to know the conversation that went on in these hours that elapsed. Yeah, because... Here's this stranger that he's bowed down to and acknowledges capital L, capital O, R, D, and we're just hanging out for hours. Yeah, because yeah, they come, and it's, it's the hot part of the day, and so they're resting under the tree, and Abram goes far beyond, hey, would you like a Coke? He 
keeps them there through the hot part of the day so that they're able to rest. He prepares them a meal, possibly also prepares them other provisions that they can take to continue on their journey, right? And, and when we go down the highway, right, there's a McDonald's at every other exit. So our experience of traveling is completely unlike theirs, right? If you're hungry, uh, you can stop probably within the next five or 10 miles and get a Snickers. Whereas for them, people who traveled would have been dependent on the hospitality of others to make it from where they started to where they're going, which is part of why hospitality was so important in the ancient world. It's not that you didn't have inns. It's that those weren't usually safe places. So you would offer to keep someone in your home, even people you didn't know. Uh, but then you would generally be able to expect that from others as well as you travel. So. What I really loved, I found most interesting, Abraham's having this conversation. They're talking about, where's Sarah? Where's Sarah? And then the Lord says, you're going to have a baby. And uh, how many men around here are on their cell phones having a conversation? And you do something very interesting. You say something about your wife, or something is said about your wife, and then all of a sudden you hear in the background, oh! and I'm thinking, every man around this table that's married has had that experience. Like, I didn't know she was listening to that. Never happened with Rose. <laughs> right. Yeah. What I'm trying to figure out, Ken, is just God and three people. I mean, how does, unless God Himself manifests in the flesh, how is He going to eat? <clears throat> or with the three servants of the Lord Himself, and they sit down and have a little barbecue. Yeah. So it says in verse 2, right? In verse 1, we're told that the Lord appeared to Abraham, but in verse 2, that's described as. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So it seems to be the case that the Lord has manifested himself in the appearance of a man together with two angels, and that's the, the form he takes as he encounters and converses with Abraham, and then later goes on his way to Sodom, So, which is really interesting. I'm thinking of the three wise men. I wonder if they came to the east. Concerning Sarah, I'm not sure. I mean, I've always thought of this as not her kind of laughing to herself, not just hysterically laughing, yeah. just, you know, hysterically laughing, I'm trying to say. But, you know, she was just kind of, oh, this, this can't be, you know. Yeah. I think, you know, because uh, uh, nobody else seemed to have noticed that she laughed other than the Lord said, why did she laugh? Yes, I think you're right. Yeah, I didn't didn't think that it was boisterous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just kind of hit me that it was maybe not audibly loud, but it's just the, the message itself was loud. Well, and notice that the Lord 
knows, right? It says in verse 12, right, that she laughed to herself saying, presumably she's also saying this to herself, whether it's under her breath or just thinking it in her mind, that uh, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did she laugh and say? So he knows, as you mentioned, right? He knows what other people didn't have the chance to hear. So, and he says at that point, right, is anything too hard for the Lord? Which again is maybe the beginning of the pulling back the curtain and making it more clear to both Abraham and to Sarah that this isn't just three guys who happen to be walking past their pasture, but the Lord is among them and visiting them. So why does the Lord describe or reveal to Abraham what he's about to do? I think it's because of Lot being in the city. Uh, it, uh, he, uh, Abraham was concerned about Lot as he went and rescued him before. <laughs> it's a lot seen to be the, the nephew that a lot of people don't like even to have because <laughs> he's always getting in trouble. <laughs> yeah. So we've got this fellow Lot, right? You remember he's Abraham's nephew. He's been rescued before. And where is he living now? He's in Sodom. Yeah, yeah, he's in he's in Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah. We associate him together. Sodom usually gets top billing. So the the Lord's visit seems to be twofold, right? It it unfolds as almost kind of a by the way, as though the Lord decides, oh, maybe I'll tell him what I'm going to do. But, but the Lord's visit to Abraham here seems to serve two purposes. One is to announce that Sarah's going to have a child and to reveal to Abraham what he's about to do, which has what effect? Right? What follows from that um, revealing of his plans? Uh, it's almost like Abraham's, I don't say testing God, but just saying, hey, if these men and people are righteous, we're just going to destroy it. But he doesn't just stop there. He just keeps going and going until he gets down to one. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's almost like, sorry, go ahead. He's just kind of testing. That is what it, yeah. I said, maybe that's not the right word, but uh, just, hey, if this... If, if you could do if this happens, would you do this type of, to God? And he already knows it's the Lord, so yeah. why even do that anyway? Yeah. But I had to go back to when they're going to Sodom, that it says that the Lord uh, says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm, at, what I'm about to do? So he conversing with the other two angels about it, or is that just a statement from the narrator, I guess, from God? Well, so that's a good question. So in verse 16, two of them leave. Well, they, they set out towards Sodom, uh, and Abraham went with them. And then it seems to be, oh, we get this in verse 22, sorry. Um, so he, he describes things from verses 16 to 21, and then two of the guys leave, but the Lord stays. And and then Abraham intercedes. So, and that may be one one way to 
you describe testing, it's like he's interceding for Sodom. And there's this very interesting way that unfolds, right? It kind of sounds like they're, they're arguing over the price of a car, right? Where Abraham starts high, right? Or maybe starts low, right? If you can find 50 righteous people, right? Surely you're not going to destroy the righteous along with the wicked. And then he brings him down. Now, did the Lord know that Abraham was going to intercede in this way? Yeah, and he knew he could oh, find he five good men. It's just like right now, Mike, close to half a million people have left California. I'm comparing to what goes on in California to Sodom and Gomorrah. Close so to he, half a million people have got out of California this year alone. And I don't think it's just because of the taxes. So he slowly brings him down. And notice that throughout that conversation, Abraham is deferent, right? He defers to the Lord. He, he asks, he requests. And he brings him down to the point where the Lord promises that if he can find 10 righteous people, he'll spare the city. So the Lord's visit and his revealing of his plans also seems to be a way of prompting Abraham to pray on behalf of this sinful city. One thing that, that strikes me um, in verse 25 is, um, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? It seems like Abraham is almost setting the standard of what is just up and expecting the Lord to meet it rather, like just the wording, it strikes me that um, he's putting the Lord up to, up to a human standard, a human understanding of justice. That's a, good, that's a good comment. So looking at verse 25, right? In Abraham's comment, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? I think there are two ways to look at that. And one is possibly Abraham is trying to hold the Lord to a human understanding of what justice is and what it has to look like. I think another way to understand that is he's pleading God's character with God. You are a just God, so please act justly in response to this city and their sin, but also the righteous who live there. And I think that actually is instructive for how we pray, that we can actually plead the Lord's character, right? Say we know that you are a God who's merciful and just and long-suffering. And so, Lord, please be long-suffering with this person whom I'm praying for. Lord, I know that you have said in your word that you are a God who delights to forgive. And so I ask as I confess this sin that you would be faithful and just to forgive it. Um, and I think that may be a better way. The, the wording in English suggests more tension between what Abraham is saying and what the Lord is willing to do. And I think there's actually less. And a part of how I think we see that is, is he sets Abraham up to intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah when he, he didn't have to. Well, what Clyde, it's what Clyde said. <clears throat> Maybe 
he was giving Abraham time to get Lot's family out, Clyde. I was going to say, I noticed down past that when uh, Abraham speaks to it, it's spelled L little O-R-D. The next three times when he speaks in 27, 30, and 32. Mm -hmm. Yes. So verse 27, Behold, I have, under, I have undertaken to speak to my master, right? I who am but dust and ashes, right? And then again... In verse 30, oh, let not my master be angry, right? Um, and so, and then again in verse 32, oh, let not my master be angry and I will speak again. And so that brings us back to the observation, a couple of comments that we can make. One is that it's appropriate to address the Lord both with his personal name and as my master. Um, the situation, like the surrounding situation seems to indicate that Abraham understands who he's talking to. And so why doesn't he address him as Yahweh? Well, if you remember, we're told in Exodus 3 and in Exodus 6, when the Lord reveals himself to Moses and gives Moses his name, he says that he was not known by that name to their fathers. And so we have this interesting situation in Genesis where the people to whom Genesis is written know the Lord by that name, but the people Genesis is written about did not know the Lord by that name. And so it seems from the context that Abraham has identified who he's talking to at some point in this exchange. Um, and for our sake as readers, both ancient and modern, he's referred to as Yahweh at several points in the chapter, even in his self-reference in his speech. But Abraham doesn't use that name here to name him. There's a great book about that and some other features of the, of the Pentateuch and the patriarchal narratives in particular, some of their oddness in relation to the, the rest of the Old Testament, um, is by Walt Moberly. I think he's got two E's in his name. Um, and the name of the book is The Old Testament of the Old Testament. And so he talks about the some of the odd features of the narratives of the patriarchs, one of them being the Lord's name and the seeming inconsistent use of it as the... Right. Genesis essentially relates to the rest of the Old Testament in a similar fashion to the way the Old Testament relates to the New. That there are some things that change in the manner in which God relates to his people, um, but then it's addressed to those later people, but it's talking about the earlier period, and that helps explain some of why it, it feels weird when we're reading it. Because yeah, Abraham, looking back at it, he never... Uh, calls the Lord Lord Yahweh when he's talking. The only Lord is either God speaking about himself or the narrator speaking about uh, all caps, Lord. Yeah. Everything that Abraham says, it appears, unless I miss it. Well, so we do have in, um, in chapter 15, verse 8, when he says, O Lord God, you see God in all caps. And the reason it's translated that way is 
because of how the Jews avoided the pronunciation of the Lord's name. But it would be um, Adonai Yahweh. But yeah, there's a there's an inconsistency in the narrative there because sometimes Moses puts the Lord's name in the narrative or in, in the Lord's own mouth or in the character's mouth, but he, he hadn't actually revealed himself by that name until Exodus. All right. Is ready to go into chapter 19? So bear in mind what we've read, and especially this conversation between the Lord and Abraham as Abraham intercedes for the city of Sodom. And we may, we may only get through the first half. That would be okay. Uh, two angels came to Sodom, verse 19. Sorry, chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, that you may rise up early and go on your way. Notice that Lot's response on meeting strangers is very similar to Abraham's response in the previous chapter. He greets them. Um, he humbles himself before them. He offers them hospitality. It's a different time of day. And so the shape of that hospitality is a little bit different than what Abraham offered. Do you think that the men went straight to Lot's house so that and that would be why he's the one that greeted them? Or do you think, because I always have imagined it, like there are lots of people around and Lot's the one that kind of steps forward and offers hospitality. But which way is it more likely? It seems, based on the way verse 1 is phrased, that it's that ladder, right? That they come to the city, Lot's sitting at the gate, the gate of the city rather than the gate of his home. And he steps forward and offers them this hospitality. So, and presumably there would be other people there. It's a good question. So he invites them to come and stay the night at his house, right? Uh, they said, this is near the end of verse three, they said, or verse two, sorry. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. 
and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. Lot there. A lot there. A lot is also there. There's a lot there. How does this chapter relate to the previous one? What do you notice about, especially as you compare this with the Lord's conversation with Abraham? What do you notice? Well, the Lord had a word for Abraham's child, a word of knowledge. And the angels here say, this is going to happen. Get out of here. So they're given two glimpses into the day or days ahead. That's what it's right. It says all of the men of the city. It does. It says all the men of the city. So that would seem to include his sons-in-law, right? Or his adopted sons-in-law? That's a good question. So the phrasing of verse 4 says both young and old, all the people to the last man. That could mean every kind of person in the city, or it could mean every single individual. Whether or not Lot's sons-in-law are accepted from that is a bit tricky because they're discussed separately and they're sort of members of Lot's household, which might seem to separate them from the rest of the city. But the other thing to notice is that what needs to be found there for the Lord to spare the city? Ten. Ten. Ten righteous people, right? And whether we're speaking specifically of righteous men or just of righteous people, right? We've got Lot. We've got two sons-in-law. We probably have other people in Lot's household, servants or or others. Uh, But if it's people broadly, we would also have Lot's wife, his two daughters. We have six and we can't find four more. And that gives us a glimpse of, right, the Lord's already told us that the situation is so horrible in Sodom and Gomorrah that their sin has come up to his ears, right? It's come up to heaven. We're not talking about, right, this one day they did something that just deeply offended him and he's a spiteful God and he's going to 
squash them like a bug. Their sin is so great. And then we get glimpses of that in the interaction. But their sin is so great that we can't find 10 righteous people. And you see in the unfolding of this act of judgment, something similar to what we saw back in Genesis chapter 11. The Lord knows. He already knows. He doesn't need to go to see for himself. But his coming down and visiting the city with angels, it's a bearing witness. It adds a testimony that lays bare the seriousness of their sin so that there is no doubt remaining that they have invited this judgment on themselves. And among several other features of what we saw in Genesis 11, the Lord's coming down to see the tower that they've built. Let us go down. There's a similar bearing witness to the depth of human sin in that act of judgment as well. What strikes me is, like in verse 12, when the men ask Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters? It seems to imply that he's got a much smaller household already, even though he's got daughters. He's got a much smaller household than Abraham does already. Just his people, his crowd is so much less because Abraham's been able to fight off an army already with his people. Yeah. Yeah, Abraham's got a household that includes 318 army rangers born in his house, it says, like not hired with money from neighboring towns. Good. Any any man, any father here who's got daughters to be so desperate to protect special guests that you offer your daughters and scripture says do anything you want with them. I'm thinking I mean it's almost as we casually read it but we I'm just blown away by Lot doing that and then still he's given a way of escape and amazingly these Angels pulling back in physically. I mean, and then they they bust the door down. I'm thinking about a Hollywood version of this would be right to who knows what. Yep. So well, they still, still, but they still force him to leave because they grab him yeah. and his wife and still throw him out. And then he still doesn't want to do what they say and go to the mountains. He wants to go where he wants to go and they want to let him, but still. Yeah, that human uh, sinful nature. I'm sure you all remember with um, Hurricane Katrina and the evacuation of New Orleans, there were people who, of course, every time there's an evacuation, there are people who refuse to go, and that's one thing. But there were people shooting at National Guard helicopters that were trying to get people out. And Lot's resistance to leaving approaches, doesn't quite reach that level, but it approaches that level. He does not want to go. He hears what they're saying. He knows how bad things are in the city, 
but he will not leave. They must forcibly remove him from the city before it's destroyed. The angels did. The angels did, which they he recognizes as a kindness and a mercy to him, and yet he wouldn't go. There's, I feel like we haven't run out of questions and comments, which is great. Um, we, we do, we've got more to do this Sunday, so we do need to wrap it up, but we've got much more to talk about in this chapter. So let's revisit chapter 19 next week. Let's talk about some of these things. What's going on with Lot and his daughters? What's going on with the city? Um, there's been a line thrown around, especially the last 40 years, that suggests that the, the major sin for which Sodom and Gomorrah are judged here is a lack of hospitality, that they're inhospitable. An understatement if I've ever heard one. But there is something going on in the contrast between the hospitality that both Abraham and Lot offer and what, what they get from the city instead. So we'll, let's talk about those things and others. We'll come back to chapter 19 next week. So, so let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who shows us mercy even when we are hesitant to accept it or even opposed. We thank you that you, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive together with Christ. Lord, would you, as we read your word, would you reveal more and more to us the depth of our sin, the ways in which we are like, the, the ugliness we see in some of these characters, some of your people of old, that we might as we see these things in them, confess our sin as we find these things in ourselves, that Jesus might become bigger to us, that the wonder of your grace might become more and more marvelous. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.